This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. begin today by opening a window into my world. This fall has been hard. Far sooner than we ever thought we would, we have moved my mother-in-law into a care facility for the last days of a 10-year decline into dementia. My father-in-law is weary himself, and it's just my husband and I because his sister, though older, is severely developmentally delayed. We've waited 10 years to get to this point, and yet we're still shocked we're here. It's hard knowing there's nothing we can do. The reality of our bodies, illness, aging, and death are all too real, and we hate it. We've had to grapple with the tension of praying for relief and waiting with seemingly unanswered prayers. I share all this because, though it's completely different than where my guest today is coming from, it's a personal way that I relate. Just as I imagine some of you may not walk in her specific shoes, but you too know this tension. My guest is Stephanie Tate, author of the newly released The View from Rock Bottom. Stephanie suffered for 15 years with undiagnosed Lyme disease and has irreversible damage as a result. Her story is one of the tension of a both and God. And I think that no matter where you are in your journey, you'll find hers to be encouraging. Listen in. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. I am so excited to hear more about your story, to learn a little bit about you. And so kick us off by sharing a little bit about who you are and where you are and what occupies your days. So I'm Stephanie, as we covered. I live in Salem, Oregon with my husband and two boys. And right now I'm an author and speaker and disability advocate. Um, I had Lyme disease for 15 years before they got it correctly diagnosed. So in the course of that time, I was pretty severely impacted um, in ways that we couldn't explain. I had neurological problems. I had a lot of physical problems, arthritis, being very prone to injury, getting sick crazy often. I started having seizures uh, in the later stages I had a pretty pronounced tremor a lot of the time. I still occasionally have issues with that. But at the time, nobody could tell us what was going on, um, which was very frustrating. The insinuation from a lot of doctors was it might just all be in my head. Maybe I was really depressed or I just really liked attention. Um, So I sort of felt almost gaslit, if you will, by the medical community for years, not knowing what was wrong with me. It was only a few years ago we found out finally, once and for all, that I have Lyme disease. 
and started treating that. But unfortunately, when you leave a bacteria like that to grow in your system for 15 years unchecked, and in the case of Lyme disease, it's literally shaped like tiny little corkscrews and burrows into your tissues. So doing that for 15 years in your brain, in your heart, there's permanent damage there that you can kill the bacteria now, but that damage isn't going to go away. So I have some heart damage that I'll be living with for the rest of my life, and I have a lot of neurological impairments that aren't going to go away. And unfortunately, I have a lot of immune system problems, so I get sick darn near constantly. I actually have a kidney infection right now. I'm on really hardcore antibiotics. Um, So out of that sort of sprung this, I say, I hate that this is such a buzzword, but it was very authentic and very organic. I started sort of oversharing a lot on the internet because that's that's my personality. I am a very extroverted extrovert. For Enneagram folks, I'm the world's most 7-7. I'm out there <laughs> all the time. Uh, and so I just started putting my stuff on social media. And out of this grew this very organic audience that I never really expected. And that morphed into blogging. And eventually that morphed into speaking. And one of those speaking engagements led to uh, a book deal. So I have a book that just came out about a month ago called The View from Rock Bottom, where I really got to take all these pieces of both my story with Lyme and miscarriages and grief and pain and sorrow on one hand, and the fact that I'm a person of faith on the other hand, and saying, how, how do I fit all this together? What is a healthy and robust theology of suffering look like? How am I a chronically ill and disabled person who doesn't have a miracle healing story or a pretty neat bow to explain why God, quote unquote, did this? I I don't have that. So how do I have joy and faith and purpose and a life right now and still carry those other pieces of my story faithfully? And so that sort of sprung out and it came, became the view from rock bottom. There's so much in there that I, so many different directions I want to go right now. I'm trying to tell my brain to pause on certain things. I want to come back to Lyme for sure. I want to come back to the theology of suffering. Let's start for this, for the meantime, with um, telling us a little bit more about that tension that you just named. And through the lens of Fierce and Lovely for Uh, the sake of this podcast, how did you begin to reconcile all of all of that both and and what did the Mm -hmm. intersection of fierce and lovely look like for you in the midst of this chronic illness and so much other pain as a result in your life? I have to be honest that I think I'm still reconciling a lot of it very present tense. Um, I came up in a really conservative background in which um, if you follow any sort of the church polity stuff, you've probably heard a lot going on about the SBC right now, the Southern Baptist Convention. I came up in the Conservative Baptist Association. We literally split off from the SBC because they weren't conservative enough for us. So if you can imagine, it was a background that was, um, I wouldn't say full on fundamentalist, but pretty close at times. So For me, culturally growing up as a woman in that faith background, I don't feel like there was any room for the fierce side. It was all the lovely side. It was all the keep it sweet, keep it encouraging, keep it positive, keep it upbeat. 
basically be the walking embodiment of K-Love 24-7 encouraging all the time. <laughs> and anything less than that was sort of seen as um, less than faith, right? As if fear and faith exist on this spectrum of opposites. So you, you can't have any fear and have faith. You have to push that out completely. And so as I started to get sick, I felt this enormous amount of pressure to sort of not only say, this is okay, I trust you, Jesus, but do it all with a brave face and a smile without breaking a sweat. That any acknowledgement that there was any part of me that thought, I don't, I don't like this, this isn't fair, I, what is happening to my life, that was a no-go. I needed to just push through and show everyone, this is okay, because Jesus, I'm sure it's all going to be fine, just wait and see. So as the years progressed and that didn't happen, it sort of left me sitting in that tension, whether I liked it or not. Like I was sort of thrust into that space of tension of what, what do you do with that then when, when you can't be lovely all the time, when you have to fight the system and advocate to get heard by your doctors and look up your own answers. And when you have to push back against systems of injustice, not just because you want to be a good ally, but because you're the one they're marginalizing when you're disabled and when you're chronically ill and you can't afford health insurance and you're, you know, we almost lost our house at one point because our insurance premium is equal to our mortgage right now. It's insanely high. And that's just the premium. I, I didn't mean to tap into the fear side of me quite so much, but it's always been there. I have always felt like I didn't quite fit the mold of what a good Christian woman should look like because I wasn't, I, I, I did naturally want to get involved in social causes and want to speak up. And I just spent years feeling like I wasn't supposed to. And so once I came to this place where I didn't really have a choice, I had to figure out how to advocate for myself and my needs. And I sort of was thrust into that intersection naturally. And I think part of me is still unwinding what it looks like to hold those two in tension. I think in the beginning, when you start to realize, hey, the way I came up wasn't healthy, and there's, there's some toxic aspects to this sort of faith, the natural inclination can be to throw it all out the window and run full bore to the other side, be all fierce all the time, um, sort of knock down every door of injustice. I think for a while in my late teens, early 20s, my social media feed was basically just all rants all the time. <laughs> Uh, and it's taken a lot of time and it feels weird to say maturity. I don't feel like I'm that old, but it, it is. It, it takes a certain amount of time and maturity to wind it back and say, yes, there were some toxic elements to this all lovely all the time, but there's something so precious and so holy in finding that sacred space in the middle of finding a way to blend these suicides together of, I am fierce, I am passionate about social justice causes, I do have to work really hard to advocate, but on the other side, there's still joy to be had in this life, and there, there still needs to be space for looking for the things that are going right, and there still needs to be space for creating beautiful things, uh, even when there's horrible stuff going on in the world, there still needs to be room for art and writing and beauty and, you know, going to the park with your kids and making space for these everyday moments in the right now. And 
I'm not always great at that. I'm still working out what it looks like to live in that intersection. But I think I'm a lot more intentional about it now. Well, you talked a little bit about um, advocating for non-abled bodies being having disabilities yourself as a result of the disease. And I'm curious, maybe just one example of what it looks like to to strongly advocate for, to come against the injustices, the marginalization, um, Mm -hmm. which is the fierce, but to do so in a way that brings forth life and beauty, which is that lovely side. What's an example of how you've seen that come together as you have advocated for non-abled bodies like yourself? I think a lot of my focus right now is on the humanity of disabled people and our personhood and, and less focus on, I mean, there's, there has to be space for calling out the ways that ableism is harming us. I don't want to downplay that. And I never want to sort of tone police people that are angry and hurt by the systems. There's absolutely a right to be, and there's times we need to raise our voice and it's going to sound angry to people who, who haven't felt what it feels like to be in that position. But for me right now, I'm trying to focus on what it looks like to really humanize the disabled perspective, to show people what it looks like to walk through life as a disabled person and point out the ways that, hey, this world really isn't set up for people like me. And whether you mean to or not, some of the systems that we live in, um, whether it be capitalism, whether it be, I don't know, there's a lot of examples, sort of perpetuate this message that you are as valuable as what you offer the world in terms of, you know, can you create something? Can you get a job? Can you make money? And your value is sort of determined by what you do and what you are capable of doing. And when you're disabled, you know, we, our idea of what we're capable of is going to be very different than a typical able-bodied person. Um, And so just sort of showcasing that spectrum of we're fully human we're fully encompassing of the image of God. We're image bearers too. What does it look like to respect our humanity, to call out our strengths, to look for ways to integrate us better into your communities, into your churches? What does it look like to make sure that we're not just welcome to sit in your pews at your churches, but that you see disabled bodies up on the platform, that you see people leading and teaching, that we're not just people to be ministered to. We're also people who are capable of teaching and learning from Um, that's sort of been my primary focus right now is advocating more for the positives of what disabled people have to offer uh, and sort of trying to figure out what that looks like in the context of the church, especially. Mm, I love that. That's a great example. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the theology of suffering that you have developed as a result of your experience and your study and is really the, the bulk of your book is the theology of suffering. Tell us a little bit about kind of what the prevailing theology is around suffering. I, I don't know that that has a name, but it or it does actually, but many of us would not say that that's what we follow. So yeah. talk about that a little bit and then tell us some more about the theology of suffering that you have developed. So a lot of my book was in dismantling uh, the prosperity gospel specifically. And I say prosperity gospel, and a lot of people immediately think of very extreme examples, Uh, pastors with giant mansions who fly in planes, uh, 
or more specifically, they'll think the prosperity gospel is just pastors that say, if you give $100, you know, in tithe, God will bless you with a thousand and sort of these one-to-one financial inducements. Right. And then we, and then we say, that's not us. Right. It's so easy to point to that and be like, oh yeah, I know that's nonsense. I'm not one of those like Jewel Austin people. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I don't believe that. But a remarkable number of people that would say they don't believe the prosperity gospel, when we really dig down into our theology, uh, I'd go so far as to say that a majority, if not all, mainstream Christian churches are preaching uh, a pretty heavy dose of prosperity gospel underneath it. And the reason I say that is because at its core, the prosperity gospel isn't defined by money necessarily. It's defined by having a transactional view of God and a transactional view of obedience. If I do the right things, if I do what I'm supposed to do, well, sure, I may not be protected from every bad thing. Like, sure, people will still die and you might get cancer, but there's definitely a baseline level of security and blessing that I can expect. I'm not going to be homeless. I'm not going to live under a bridge because I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm in God's will and he's going to bless that. And the more I dug in to what scripture really says about suffering, about grief, about trials, it, that theology just doesn't line up to what we're actually told in scripture. And that disconnect was really problematic for me, again, through the lens of being a chronically ill and disabled person, because as I started to write the book, we were going through the heart, the absolute height of the, um, the debates around health insurance and the Affordable Care Act. And I kept hearing a lot of these arguments that were very, um, I use the example in the book of a man who repeated something he'd heard on the news in front of me at my table in a church setting about how insuring people with pre-existing conditions, well, that's like asking a car insurance company to insure a car that's already been totaled. That's not fair. And I'm sitting across the table like, you just compared me to a junker car, to scrap metal, at a, at a dump. I, I'm a human being. I'm sitting here. And I couldn't figure out how we had gotten to a disconnect that would allow a person of faith who legitimately considered me a friend to dehumanize another person in that way. And the more I dug, the more I realized that you can't have this prosperity gospel thinking in your own theology and not expect that that's going to be externalized in the way that you treat others and in the way that you sort of see our systems of what do we owe our neighbors, which is really all politics is, right? It's not a bunch of guys up on a hill debating. It's it's us all deciding what do we owe our neighbors? What do we owe each other? And how will we care for each other going forward? So if we have these internal theologies that we're not recognizing that say, I have all these good things because I earned them, because I made the right choices and God blessed me because of my obedience, it's impossible not to have some part of your brain that does the flip side of that. Those people over there that are always in need, that are always asking for something, well, they need to get off their butts and make good choices then too. Because if I did it, they can do it too. And it kills our empathy for each other. So I became very passionate about looking at this theology of suffering in a very meaningful way and saying, how can we have a deeper, more robust theology that leaves room for lament, that leaves room for grief, that respects the power of our pain, first of all, and doesn't try to gloss over it all with trite answers, 
But ultimately, my goal was so that we can create space to be more empathetic for others and to be the church to other people, to care about the needs of those who are suffering and in pain, because we've developed this theology that allows us to say, this is not your fault. There's no blame or shame in this, but it's our job to care for each other inside these spaces of pain. Hmm. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by the power of pain, acknowledging the power of our pain. Well, again, because I came up in a culture that was sort of all upbeat, encouraging, you know, we don't air our dirty laundry in public and women should be very uh, uplifting and encouraging. And I think I felt this propensity to gloss over how hard things really were. And in doing so, I thought I was serving God better by having a, a better attitude, by putting on a brave face. And I told a story in the book specifically about how um, my husband and I went through seven miscarriages. Uh, and we have very different personality types. And so we grieved very differently. And we sort of were grieving separately from each other in a way. And I was really to blame for that because I felt like I had a responsibility to hold myself somewhat together and not burden my husband with me falling apart. And so I was grieving very inwardly, and he didn't know how much of a mess I really was. And in turn, I ended up resenting him for not, you know, being as sad as me, for not loving them as much. And I sort of blew that out of proportion in my head. And it took me a while to realize that Instead of connecting with each other inside of this really painful experience, it was becoming a wedge that was driving us further apart because I wasn't sharing with him who I really was, what I was really feeling, and what we could have been going through together. And the reason I shared that story in the book is because I recognized later that we have a tendency to do that same thing with our relationship with God. We have a tendency to feel like we can bring him things, but we have to sort of clean them up and put on a brave face and say, but it's okay, God, I'm good with this. Um, your will be done. But um, if you have time, maybe fix this thing for me. Thanks. And we're missing the opportunity to really connect with him in meaningful ways inside of our pain. I think so often we think we're just being whiny. We're just, you know, on repeat. Mm -hmm. And I know that in relationships, it's easy to think that, like, am I really going to complain about this again today? I've complained about it for the last five days. Surely he's tired of hearing about it. And take that same feeling to God, right? Where we, and yet we are encouraged to come and plead before him over and over and over until our prayer is answered. And then the reality that maybe on this side of heaven, on this side of eternity, it won't be answered in the way that we desperately want it to be. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to tell, tell us a little bit about what, before we hit record, what you were telling me about um, the verse, how you kind of ended of our hope will not be oh. shamed and just holding that, holding out that God hears us, even if we're not going to get the answer that we want. Yeah. So as quickly as I can, the the book circles the theme over and over of sort of sacred things existing in tension. Um, it's part of what I loved about your show description is this idea of both ands instead of either ors. I really think God is a God of both ands. And because we're human and we're small, we have a tendency to fight over things that seem contradictory to us. So 
we feel like we need to pick a side. Is he more about, you know, grace or more about works? Is he more about truth or more about love? He's both. And that's hard for us because we're not as big as God. And so it's hard for us to stand in both of those things at the same time. They seem contradictory to us. And yet somehow in him, they find perfect completion and perfect balance. And so the book itself sort of stands in the same tension in that I spent eight chapters really digging into this theology of suffering and saying, hey, we're not going to have trite answers for everything. You're not always going to get the healing on this side of earth or, or the baby after all the waiting or the check that covers exactly enough. That may not be your story. So stop expecting that and learn how to live in your right now life. And yet the final chapter of the book is also me coming to the recognition that just because we're not promised those things doesn't let us off the hook for asking for them. That we're still called to find a way to fight for hope. And I had sort of seen hope in this very naive, you know, unicorns and rainbows, fluffy sort of sense for so long. I was very resistant to the idea of hope. It seemed very naive and childish. And through the course of my story, God has sort of shown me I see hope less in that now and more in stories like Jacob wrestling with God, right? Like hope is to me more battle-worn and showing up and saying, yes, we could lose and we've lost before, but we're still going to show up and keep fighting anyways because we have a God who's big enough to do it. And the final chapter is sort of me circling around that one of the verses we go over and over in earlier chapters about suffering producing endurance, endurance producing character, and on and on the list goes. I had sort of missed that the very last phrase at the end of this passage uh, says that it produces hope and then follows it with, and hope does not put us to shame. The idea that it feels exposing. It feels reckless. I called that last chapter, Blessed are the Reckless, because it feels so reckless to say, I'm not promised a miracle and I'm going to go out in front of everybody and ask for it anyways. But hope will not put us to shame. There's, there's no shame in recognizing we have a big enough God who's still capable to do these things and stand in that tension of, I know I'm not promised this and it may never come. But God, I'm going to keep showing up and I'm going to keep humbling myself and asking for it anyways. That tension is so hard to live with. I think we resist it so much and yet it feels Mm -hmm. like the key to understanding who God is and the key to really getting scripture is to embrace yeah. tension, to embrace that there is a paradox, there is a both and to who he is, or, or perhaps to our understanding, right, of him. If anything, I would say that questions and mystery don't make me wonder how God can be real. If anything, they really confirm for me that he mm. is, because if we had made him up, boy, would we make him make a lot more sense than this. <laughs> The more I find these paradoxes and the more I find these truths that seem contradictory and are too big for me to hold in my human space, the more I try to take that as an assurance that he is just that much bigger and that much more powerful and that much more impossible for us to grasp in these tiny human minds. And and I take a lot of comfort mm-hmm. in that. Oh, that totally. Sense. I love that. Well, Stephanie, just for the sake of time, I would, and because I mentioned it, I'd love to just end with a little bit of transition here and a little bit of details around Lyme disease because, you know, you went 15 years without identifying Mm -hmm. it. There's a medical community that is under um, identifying it. And so I would love 
just for you to give us a little bit more detail on how to detect Lyme disease, some of some of your activism in the medical community, or, or what you might encourage all of us to do to bring this more to light so that others are not suffering for so long without a diagnosis. So for the sake of time, <clears throat> I do want to point to two possible resources. One is not to self-promote, but if you Google any combination of the words like woman, today show, Lyme, um, I did a piece with Today Show earlier this year, kind of giving a little more background on my story and my difficulty with getting diagnosed. They were doing a broader story on um, bias against women in healthcare and how it can be very hard for women to get correctly diagnosed with things. So there's about a 13-minute long interview that sort of goes through a bit of my story there. Um, another thing that I would point people to who want more info than what I can give you here is a really great documentary called Under Our Skin. I don't know if it's still up on Amazon, but that's how I watched it originally. Um, and I, The first time I watched it, I basically saw my story over and over and over, and I sobbed because it was person after person who had been through even some of the same incorrect diagnoses that I had, exact ones, uh, only to find out that they had had Lyme this entire time. And the shortest version I can give you is that there is a lot of controversy in the medical community about Lyme disease. Um, and the documentary does a way better job than I could in explaining why that is. Um, there's some patent-based reasons that this is such an issue. Um, and that's really all I can say right now without going way too far into detail. But there's a lot of controversy about whether Lyme exists. And as a result, because of the way our health insurance systems work right now, any excuse to say, oh, yeah, that's not a thing and we don't cover that and don't treat that, insurance companies are going to jump right through that hole. Every single one of them. This is not a problem that's indicative of my insurance. It's just all of them. <laughs> And so it's really difficult to get treatment for Lyme. And so as a result, there's not a lot of money in studying it more, in treating it better, or in diagnosing it correctly. The current test is so notoriously inaccurate that states on the East Coast, a few of them pass laws that say, if you take a Lyme test as it exists right now, your doctor has to present you with a piece of paper that says effectively, if this test comes back negative, it does not mean you don't have Lyme. That's how inaccurate the blood test is. Part of it is that the test isn't actually testing for Lyme, it's testing for your immune system's reaction to Lyme, which means there are about 80 different reasons I could list off why you might not test positive that day, but you do have Lyme. And they know that, but I joke sometimes Lyme isn't one of the sexy diseases. Like we don't have an ice bucket challenge or like there's just no money or awareness in fixing this problem. So I would say if you have significant undiagnosed chronic illness issues, things like chronic fatigue, chronic pain, especially if in the later stages um, Lyme tends to mimic either Alzheimer's or uh, multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's. So in later stage you get neurological issues like neuropathy or tremors or memory loss issues. Uh, I would absolutely advocate that you seek out what's called a Lyme literate physician. You can Google what that is, LLMD, Lyme literate physician, uh, and look for somebody who specifically uh, diagnoses and treats Lyme because it's just darn near impossible to get it correctly treated by a regular doctor right now. Uh, my story is rough, but it's not rare, unfortunately. There are so many people with similar stories of Lyme that was left to run rampant in their system for years. 
So anytime you don't have a diagnosis, I don't want to be that lady that's like, it's Lyme. It's always Lyme. But go take a look. And that documentary, Under Our Skin, is really the most effective place, I think, to get kind of an overall comprehensive look at what Lyme disease can look like. Okay, great. Stephanie, thank you so much. I will put all of that in the show notes for people who want to go and learn more. This is fascinating. Your book was wonderful and encouraging and a refreshing look on pain from your own personal experience. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So much content in that conversation with Stephanie. I hope that you are leaving feeling encouraged and challenged and that your curiosity is piqued. Please check out the show notes for the links to all of those resources that she mentioned if you'd like to learn more, as well as find out how to pick up Stephanie's book and read more about her story. Such an incredible story. I love showing up here for you each week. And if you are enjoying the guests that I'm having, would you just take a second and head over to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and leave a rating or a review? It means so much to me to read those, as well as helping to populate the podcast and get it in front of other listeners. I also love interacting with people over on Instagram at Fierce Lovely or on Facebook on the Fierce and Lovely Podcast Facebook group. Thank you again for choosing to hit play on this podcast today. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.